Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, hello there. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute, and welcome to this very special podcast. Um, can I start by acknowledging the first inhabitants of the land on which we meet and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, pay our respects there too. Welcome everyone, whether you're joining us live on Zoom or listening later via Policy Forum Pod. This event is co-hosted by ANU Learning Communities and PolicyForum.net at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate school. ANU Learning Communities is a student-led organisation dedicated to bringing together people to explore areas of common interest. In its events, ANU Learning Communities engages academic, sporting, cultural, artistic and social communities to facilitate learning outside of the classroom. Events include academic panel discussions, hands-on artistic projects, film screenings, workshops, historical walks, and indeed many other things. The latest social media craze to sweep the world, TikTok, has been the entertainment platform of choice for many during periods of lockdown in this coronavirus crisis. But in recent weeks and months, TikTok has become entangled in political controversy. In late June, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi banned the app over national security concerns. Last week, Donald Trump threatened to do the same before approving a last-minute takeover of parent company ByteDance that allowed the platform to continue operating in the US. Tonight, we'll be talking all things TikTok, from the perspective of TikTokers themselves, social media researchers and security experts. But rather than relying on my questions alone, if you're in our live audience or on Zoom, uh, that is on Zoom, we also encourage you to send in your questions in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Angus from, from Policy Forum and Jazz from Learning Communities are online with us tonight to help me facilitate your questions and run polls throughout the event to get your thoughts. Now let's go to our panel Ricky Chains and Granny are some of Australia's most iconic TikTokers, starring on the At Chains family account. They have built up over 5.4 million followers in less than two years. That is just simply staggering. Their chemistry together has won them fans worldwide and has opened up opportunities for them to work with some of the world's biggest brands. Hello there, Ricky. Hi, how are you? Uh, thanks very for having well, me. Thanks. Uh, it's terrific to have you along, and you can actually explain this to me. I'm sure plenty of our uh, listeners uh, are more conversant with TikTok perhaps than, than I am, so uh, feel free to explain it in its most basic form, but we'll come to that shortly. Our next panellist is Dr James Mortensen. He's a research fellow at the Australian National University's Cyber Institute, having received his doctorate at the National Security College at the ANU 
not so very long ago. His research interests include the philosophical underpinnings of security and political theory, the role of belief systems in political action, and the role of technology in politics and society. Fair bit to be concerned with there. He's having he's moved to the Cyber Institute just recently, having um, and he's currently involved in projects including quantifying the data potential of video games and the formation of truth in cyberspace. Very interesting concept that truth anywhere really. And Dr. Crystal Aberdon is a digital anthropologist and ethnographer in vernacular and internet cultures. She's a senior research fellow, sorry, at the Centre for Culture and Technology at Curtin University and an affiliate researcher with the Media Management and Transformation Centre at Jean Copin University. She researches influencer cultures, online visibility and social media pop cultures, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, and has published over 50 articles and chapters on various aspects of internet celebrity and vernacular internet cultures. Welcome both James and Crystal. Thanks nice to be here. Really good to have you here too. Let's, uh, let's go to you first, Ricky, and just explain, if you would, your story, what, what TikTok is and how you came to be such an effective product, really, on this platform. Well, it, it's quite a simple story. Um, I think in August of 2018, the app was just coming out. It had just purchased um, Musical.ly for about a, a billion dollars. So um, that was a part of a strategy for them to really come and um, come into the Western market and um, in a big way. So I was on the in the onslaught of the ads that they were running um, at that time. And um, I downloaded the app at a train station when I was with my family. Um, I was with my daughter and my wife. Um, as soon as I downloaded it, I was hooked. Um, the, the simplicity of the app, um, the types of the, the comedy uh, and, you know, the creativity of the creators, how easy it was to kind of, there was no barrier to entry to creating content. Um, so instantly I felt like I could be a part of it. So I, um, I, I uploaded my first video. I got 10 likes and I was a superstar from that moment on. Like <laughs> the validation of putting something out so simply and having people like it and interact with your stuff straight away, that was just amazing to me. And I'd never experienced anything like it before. So, um, yeah, from there, I just kept on creating. Um, it became a habit and I just, I was addicted. And at one stage, my grandma uh, was in my house. So I decided to collaborate with her and do something funny. And that ended up getting us about 40,000 followers in the first week. And from there, we just, um, we grew hundreds of thousands of followers per month. Um, until we hit about 4 million by the end of that year, first year. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. Uh, I downloaded the app. I started creating. Um, and, yeah, it just blew up. What, when you say that you looked at it and the moment you looked at it, you were, you were hooked, what was it that was on there that was different from other products, other platforms that you were seeing on the internet? It was just the variety of things that were on the app so it wasn't just one thing it wasn't just people showing off their lives and how great they were it was people 
just um, sh- sharing their own viewpoints. And it didn't have to be glamorous. It didn't have to be, you know, very um, high quality. It was just people creating for the for the sake of creating. Um, and it was very organic. So that's what attracted me to it. Um, it was the... Uh, the ability of anybody to express themselves and, and be accepted for that. So that's what drew me to it. And just before we go to our other two guests, can you explain what is the format that, that, that essentially works on this platform? I mean, we're talking about short videos essentially. Sure, yeah. Um, so TikTok is a short video platform. Um, the interface is quite simple. You just swipe up to go to the next video. Um, and I guess the strength of the video is on how much attention that it can capture and, um, yeah, how engaging it is. So you could be swiping for a long time and then once something catches your eye, you can like it and engage with it. You can comment, you can like, you can follow, and then you'll be served. As, as it progresses, you'll be served more content that you like, um, yeah, to create the perfect feed for, for yourself. Crystal, is that a typical story as, as you understand it in terms of the way TikTok works that, uh, uh, you know, it's so organic and it's, it's, its secret is in its or one of its secrets really to its success is its just easy interface? I think there are two main reasons for TikTok success. The first one, it's its intricate competition with Instagram. Up to today, if you were to open TikTok, you still see ads from Instagram trying to lure users back to the app or lure younger people to try out the app, not just Reels, but Instagram Inc. in general. And I think the birth of TikTok came about in the post-Instagram boom, where influencers and users were frankly getting a bit tired of this picture-perfect idea of an influencer's lifestyle. It was increasing the barriers of entry for who gets to be visible on the app, you needed to be able to flaunt your fashion, your wares. You needed to be pristine in your looks. There is a whole discourse about being filtered so that you look picture perfect and ready for Instagram. And TikTok just offered users a complete opposite alternative. You didn't need to come up with um, high quality content. You didn't need to be picture perfect. You didn't even need to embody the very stereotypical ideals of an influencer who were skinny, petite, beautiful. It was an open playground that accommodated all types of content. So I think in the very early beginnings of TikTok, it finally felt like it was a space for everyone again. The second feature I think Ricky already highlighted, it's definitely the user experience. Now, specific to one thing that Ricky pointed out, the scrolling effect, you will realize that TikTok, quite like dating apps like Tinder, gives you one post at a time on your screen. And it's not like a grid on Instagram where you get to choose and pick. It's not a grid on YouTube where you see all the different videos of different genres, whatever's trending. The moment you open your TikTok app, it's the one video you get at that time. No user choice, no agency. And how you interact with it, whether or not you like this video, how fast you scroll through, whether or not you engage with it, all of this informs the app to tailor make more content specific to your taste. So I would say here, unlike the previous types of social media where you're going for searchability, finding content to consume, on TikTok, this is more about discoverability, just consuming what is given to you, finding out if you can go through wormholes and rabbit holes through the hashtags, 
chanting upon users, and then developing a profile of sorts from there. So by this end, the features of TikTok, the exact design of it, is meant to capture your attention by the second. There is no running away, there is no running out unless you opt out of the app. So does it, if, if, if the goal then for TikTok posters, for people posting on TikTok is to attract attention, is, doesn't that become, for want of a better way of describing it, a kind of an arms race in outrageousness? I mean, you know, for people to do the most outrageous things to attract attention, is that, does that happen? It does happen, but it's not the modifier or that's not the threshold of what governs attention economies on TikTok at the moment or perhaps in the long time to come. For one, it is not easy to compare posts on TikTok. Unless you like it, save it, download it, it's not easy for you to compare and contrast as opposed to, say, going on Instagram where everything is organized in the grid. Also on TikTok, there are several organizing principles. We are now all very familiar with using hashtags and captions to organize information. But on TikTok, you can also do that by audio meme as a template. And this audio meme does not dictate a primary use of that sound. If you were to click in, you get to see all the remix cultures of how people respond to this. The same happens as well for the TikTok filters. So you will see now that as opposed to a theme or content or a topic like on Twitter, on TikTok, the organizing principle is really the aesthetics. What can people make of the sound? What can they make of this filter? What are the plays and the spaces for creativity in terms of aesthetics in this space? And I think this makes it a much more leveling playing field. And therefore, if you were to ask if outrageousness is the main thing that grabs people atten- people's attentions, I would say that at the same time, there's so many other things competing. So the humor from the Change family is amazing. I love Granny. She stands out just from being not a young person on TikTok. And there is a sense of, gigantic cuteness to it people like old people on tiktok also their creative snippets transitions cuts a lot of going on there and there are different types of attention economies to lure you in ricky take us into that dynamic that crystal was just talking about with your grandma uh, how does she how does she view her her uh, late life notoriety on this platform it must be quite an extraordinary thing that she hadn't imagined would happen uh, in her senior years and, and now she's got all of this fame. What, what do you, how does she think about that and what, what do you discuss with her in terms of how you plan your, your TikTok posts? Well, she loves it, to be honest. Uh, uh, she loves to be included. She loves the app. Um, basically, she's the one that calls me every day and says, how are the numbers? What are we doing? What's the plan for this week? You know? (laughs) Um, so yeah, but she's always been a performer. Uh, she was a Peking opera singer for most of her life. Uh, she's always been into performance. So I think she's pretty comfortable (laughs) with all of this newfound fame that she has. Yeah. Look, we, we discuss pretty little actually. So I'm the one that's looking at all the trends on TikTok. Um, and she pretty much keeps off the app. And then once I have an idea, I just discuss the concept with her and we get filming and then we put it out and then we see what happens. And, um, that's the beauty of it. There's not too much planning going on. Basically, if the idea is sound, then we go for it. That's it. Is there, is there a, um, a a sort of a, a politic 
of TikTok, if I can put it like that. And I'm not talking about the debate, which we'll, I'll get to with James in a moment in terms of, um, you know, the various uh, criticisms that have been made by governments. But but in terms of the users themselves, I mean, Twitter, for example, has a, has a sort of a political personality about it. Um, in, Crystal was just talking about Instagram and 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 the particular mm. polish that's associated with that. What what's the what? How would you describe that politic on TikTok? I think TikTok is very uh, inclusive, and it really, really um, has a big emphasis emphasis on diversity, and that's a diversity of cultures, um, sexual orientation, um, and even age. You know, um, so that sounds a, fairly progressive. Then, in that sense, it's super progressive. Um, it's a double-edged sword. Um, it's good because everyone has a light. I, I guess everyone has a chance to express themselves and be accepted for it on the app. But the other thing is um, it's very easy to offend people on TikTok too. And um, you, you can't always be too vocal about your viewpoints. Um, it is political in that you need to be respectful of everybody's um, beliefs on the app. So cancel culture is rampant on the app and if you do something that crosses a barrier then you will be called out and you will be punished for it so um yeah it's it's progressive but it's also you need to tread a fine line yeah you need to really watch what you do on the app james governments uh obviously have had some problems with this uh the u.s government in particular also mentioned india uh, there's the, um, uh, you know, the implicit criticism of China. Can you just frame uh, the, the arguments that are being put against TikTok? I well, I mean, I could I could frame them, Mark, but I don't think they're going to make any more sense than when the governments poorly frame them themselves. <laughs> uh, I see at least the way that it's framed in the US, for example, um, they they take the the route of foreign ownership. Now, obviously, implicit in this, you know, sort of criticism of foreign ownership is that this ownership presumably, you know, in, in induces other things, data theft being a, being a big mm-hmm. one. In the US experience, obviously, um, social social media influence, foreign interference through social media is another big concern that they've had to deal with. India hasn't necessarily vocalised the foreign ownership as, from my perspective at least, they haven't vocalised it as the, as the main driving force. I would say actually India's experience is a lot more indicative of what might sit under the more public face of criticism. And that is a sort of prestige issue in a way. Now, I, I appreciate this is far more, uh, far less of me reporting what governments are saying and far more sort of reading between the lines. But one thing that I think people have to come to terms with is that in a way, this is, this is the first point in which let's call broadly Western social media has sort of lost hegemony. We're at a point where a, a Chinese-driven social media platform has taken, uh, a, a, has, has achieved some sort of ubiquity. Uh, and especially in the case of India, those issues, it's not the only issue, but I think that it, 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 is, a, it is a bit of an issue. Um, they've been uh, having issues with WhatsApp, say, or Facebook, well, not less Facebook and more WhatsApp. Um, video games, another big one. So, um, player unknown battlegrounds is a, is, a, is a popular mobile game that they have probably going to ban fairly soon as well um, for their effects on culture. And I think TikTok sort of falls into into that category as well. 
So what about the, uh, the let's go straight to the issue then of the, the claims of, of spying, uh, data sharing, data theft, uh, what, what, you know, however that is, uh, is uh, claimed to occur. Is there any substance in these things? I mean, maybe if I can rephrase the question or reframe the question just slightly. By all means. Don't thank you very much. I think the way that we could say critically analyze the security risk of TikTok, because ultimately I think that's what sits at the heart of it, whether it's foreign interference, whether it's a prestige issue, um, uh, whether it's foreign ownership, you know, this thing is a risk apparently, or at least in the eyes of Trump purportedly um, and Modi himself. I think generally we can break that down into into sort of three categories. So, from a personal point of view, what risk does it does it uh, does it raise for the individual, Ricky? Say, um, look, really, I think we can all use a fair amount of common sense there. Um, probably not much to the individual. Obviously, everybody's different. Um, the amount that you share, what you share, um, and I do note, I suppose, the sort of the honesty of the sharing that Ricky was talking about, uh, especially with younger younger users, I think it's it's fair enough to, con- to be concerned about how that data might add up over time. But ultimately, unless you're divulging state secrets or giving away your credit card number or, or something, um, we can probably assume that uh, no one's going to explode anytime soon by using TikTok. More probably cogent is the government concern, especially regards to foreign interference. So... Uh, in the same way that I think it would be ridiculous for anyone to make the point that using TikTok is a security risk to an individual, I think it would be just as um, unhinged to suggest that this data that is getting served to TikTok and, and that TikTok is is harnessing to create that single, that drip-fed uh, you know, newsreel, the, the one story at a time, using uh, analytics to decide what story you're going to like better next time. That data's that's got to come from somewhere. It's coming from user data. It's, it's coming from feedback that they're crunching, you know, back at home base to determine what's going to, what's going to uh, make you laugh next time. That data sitting on a server, most likely somewhere in China, or at least a copy of it is somewhere in China. And if, if we think that uh, when the CCP comes knocking on ByteDance's door and says, we need your data, that ByteDance is going to turn around and say, no, we promised our users we wouldn't give it to anyone. You know, then no one's seen the inside of a gulag, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> the last thing, though, that I think what I would prefer to really concentrate on, mm-hmm. because I think ultimately we've, we've generally, we're gonna, when we have this discussion, we say, well, look, you know, it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting me as an individual. And, you know, the government say, well, you know, it, it might hurt us from a foreign interference perspective. And there's poor arguments to support or poor arguments to, def- to, de- to deny that. But what I would really like to see further along in the conversation is what it means to us as a public, especially, um, just look at my notes, given, uh, you know, we are talking about this sort of more honest platform, a window basically into my into our lives. Um, when we're talking, one window is, is all well and good, but when we're talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions of windows into hundred millions of lives, having that data sit in private hands or in public hands, whether that's public in the form of the US government or the Chinese government or anyone else, what that the accrual of that data actually means, uh, and that might mean that might be dependent on what we mean by security ultimately. Um, but you know, the the arrival of TikTok, whether it's owned by China or anyone else, really in the grand scheme of things, is it's it's, it's something that's happening very 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 quickly. We're we're still within twenty years of Facebook, for example, and we still haven't dealt with that. Um, so 
when it comes to our concerns around this app, um, it's it's one of many. I don't think it should be singled out any more than any others. But, you know, it's just this sort of, I'll just wave this little flag that says, you know, we haven't really worked out what this huge data monolith that we've created is actually going to do to us as a, as a society. So it might be a good opportunity to remember that while we're busy whinging about who owns what. Crystal, are you uh, concerned uh, on, on, on any of those fronts in, just in terms of the sheer volume of uh, information that is accumulated by TikTok about uh, people's daily lives, their preferences, what makes them laugh, as James says, um, what they're doing. In, in the aggregate, the, the, the volume of that information being potentially instructive uh, in ways perhaps that we don't understand yet, but um, it's uh, given TikTok's ownership in China. Is, is that something that should be of concern or is it uh, merely no more concerning than... I mean, is the data, for example, largely harmless and no more concerning, therefore, than any of the other big internet monoliths? I have two responses to this. The first would be to deliver a snippet right from my fieldwork and my interviews to my informants. To quote one of them, as an Australian person using the internet, Facebook links to just about anything and everything they want to use. You can link it up to the most esoteric devices that you want to use in your smart home, all the way to signing up for all sorts of events, even on Eventbrite. TikTok does not yet have that interoperability or that penetration across multiple platforms. It is not yet used as your one-click sign-in, your real identity to log into many other types of platforms and interfaces. So from that point of view of the user, there is not so much fear of volunteering personal data on TikTok as opposed to the likes of Facebook. But perhaps the fears and fatigue that we have over anxieties over Facebook have just waned over time and people have forgotten them. It could also be that there are already so many issues with Facebook. Every other month there is a new privacy scandal that our blinders and blinkers are now on. We don't respond in the same way to these sorts of anxieties. On the other hand, my second point, with TikTok being still relatively new, we have to think back about the way it was introduced to the Western world. From the very early beginnings, it was always touted as the Chinese app or the international version of a Chinese app. And up to today, it's three years old as of this month. It's one of the most downloaded apps in the 2010s. It's got some of the highest earning influences. It was a really, really great public service instrument during COVID-19 to normalize a lot of hygienic practices. And yet almost every news article you see covering TikTok still opens with, it is Chinese owned. It is something that it's can't seem to run away from. You don't really see the same though of many other apps not made in the US, say Skype, for example. They're not the same anxieties that they were not born and bred and birthed in Silicon Valley. So we do have to acknowledge here that there is always this air of Orientalism and exoticism with the ways we talk about TikTok before even going to the specific issues that we want to zoom in on. And this, again, is also something that's been highlighted by a lot of the influencer agencies that I've interviewed for my study. But is that really Orientalism or is it, I mean, I'm not denying that there's an element of that in it uh, and, and you may be absolutely right, but is it not also a concern over the nature of the Chinese state rather than the fact that it's of Chinese origin? The very fact that, that, that China is a, an autocratic state, uh, that uh, in security and information is centralised and used in ways that democratic societies at least pretend to be uncomfortable with except if it's Facebook. 
To be frank, looking at the state of the world today, the same can be said of so many other global northern um, governments. And maybe historically, on paper, by legacy, they may not be as so. But in practice, with new leaders appointed around the world with very contentious practices, there is not much of a difference in terms of citizens having to worry about how information is used, regardless of where the companies are placed in the world. I would also say, again, reporting from my informants who have to straddle between the East and the West, so to speak, in the Asia-Pacific region, they feel that at least with something like TikTok, there is an awareness of how the Chinese government operates. If they wanted to zoom in on privacy concerns, there is a lot of literature out there about how there are milestones you need to understand. There are pit stops, there are pitfalls. So they feel that there is at least some degree of transparency over the amount of things you need to worry over. Whereas the same is not true for other Western-style Global North governments who have recently become a bit more authoritarian, um, where people are now discovering new things or new practices in the way they run citizen data or in the way to collect information. Um, and we only find out these things whenever big corporations, again, like Facebook, get exposed for another Cambridge Analytica scandal, as opposed to having that anxiety packed onto us from the beginning and being able to thread the waters, knowing the, the terrain that we are in. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. James, what about the, um, the, the sort of, I, I suppose, the idea of this being simply a kind of a proxy debate in a way, that uh, this is a Chinese company, uh, there's, uh, you know, sort of tit-for-tat uh, uh, arguments going on between China and the US, China and Australia, China and a number of other countries, and that uh, this is, and of course China itself, uh, you know, uh, prohibits the use of, of Google and Facebook uh, within China. Uh, so there's um, a sense, perhaps this is uh, driving uh, Modi's position in India as well, a sense of uh, not allowing China to expand culturally into those nations and commercially into those nations, trying to put fetters on that as a kind of a response to, to uh, China's um, behaviour and expansive um, rhetoric. I think it's very difficult I mean, obviously, in all in all things, we've got a tendency to look for that that uh, you know that that defining answer, that defining reason. Um, I certainly would take the point, especially regarding India. I saw there in the Q and A, someone's talking about the border dispute, um, whether the border dispute might put pressure on 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 Modi's decision. Um, absolutely, you know, in the same way that the trade war uh, is absolutely um, the driving reason for the public face, at least of of Trump's ban, and I think I'm right up to date now. The Trump's now backflipped, so the Oracle and Walmart uh, buyout is not enough. It needs to be 100. Right? He's 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 playing and playing a deal for the ownership of the company. Right? Um, I yeah. So I would completely accept that the the border dispute 
the trade war are a huge drivers in the way that this is manifesting. I would also accept, I suppose, to a degree, uh, uh, as Chris was saying earlier, the, the, the degree of Orientalism, you know, that we're putting this in a different category to Facebook, even though Facebook has such, you know, a, a far worse track record uh, in a lot of ways and, um, and is far more intrusive or successfully intrusive. Mm. Um, however, I would also suggest that when we, when we talk about these issues, there's a very good reasons, very good rhetorical and, and just conceptual reasons why we talk about states almost like they're people, you know, like there's the US and that's Steve and there's China and that's Mark and they're having a fight, you know, what's China doing? What's the US doing? Um, but especially in the case of liberal Western democracies, we're talking about sprawling masses of bureaucracy and, and, and huge competing interests and all sorts of stuff. Uh, in regards to this particular issue, I would say, whilst the border dispute is certainly a, a powerful issue for India, while the trade war is certainly a powerful issue for Trump, less so for America, I think uh, there are legitimate concerns. When I say legitimate concerns, I mean that for the for the forces of bureaucracy at play in the national security space, um, they have they have genuine concerns about the amount of data that's getting captured, the what could be used, what that data could be used for. Um, some of those concerns are more more pressing than others. So in the case of, say, the Australian government, Morrison has said quite clearly that he's not going to, we're not going to ban it. Uh, Andrew Hastie, however, Liberal Senator, uh, Parliamentary Committee on Security, um, has praised the ADF for banning pers defence personnel from using the app and says they should go further. Now, those concerns are more based around the fact that maybe I'm going to open that window to the world and prejudice myself or, or put, put information out there that could be used against me. So from a national security point of view, a lot of, uh, a lot of governments, I think, or a lot of parts of governments, bureaucratic parts of governments have that concern. In a longer term game, what's sitting behind this, I believe, in, in some strategic, you know, little nests in various defence uh, defense ministries around the world is uh, the use of AI, the use of social social media and, and, and socially gathered data to drive machine learning and to, to drive weaponized narratives um, and the concern that essentially a new player coming from a nation that at least is, seems outwardly to the hawks among us as being uh, hostile is basically inviting an edge. Maybe a better way of saying it is like we're, we're, we're con they're concerned about the export of a dangerous material in a, in a way. We're, by letting everybody TikTok to their heart's content, we're exporting a material that could give, uh, give them an edge in a, in, a, in a conventional national security space. Well, it's going to be interesting to see whether there's any substance to that. It seems like a pretty thin argument, doesn't it? Uh, particularly the one about, um, you know, banning defence personnel from using it because they could compromise themselves. I mean, uh, you can't really blackmail people with the release of information that they've actually published um, themselves. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll, uh, we'll um, see how that uh, goes. I'm not surprised that Andrew Hasty, um, who's a, a Liberal member for Hastie, a Liberal member for Canning, um, would, uh, would take that view because he's been, uh, as you say, as you use the term, very much a China hawk in, in this debate. Yeah. But, it's 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 
and this is what I find why I fundamentally fall back to the position of, of what do we want as a society, right? What is like, forget personal security. Well, don't forget personal security. You obviously care about personal security, you care about national security, but what about our, our public security as a security, as a polity or as a, as a, as a, as a, as a community? Uh, because unfortunately, whether it's due to the technological nature or the, or the, the you know, whether because of border disputes, because of trade wars, we're in a scenario where we're faced with a, with a, a problem that we fundamentally don't know the answer to. We don't know the capacities. I don't know the capacity for ADF personnel to get blackmailed. I'm not going to have access to that information. I don't know necessarily whether China is about to release the new Skynet based on TikTok dances. I don't know. We don't know. Um, we can only guess, and we can only guess as to whether it's 10% foreign investment and 90% foreign interference or, you know, the other way around. Um, so instead of trying to second guess the government, which is, <laughs> you know, laughable at the best of times, maybe instead um, we can pair back and say, what is the information that we're actually putting online? How do we want it to be used? What do we as a society want to see happen? And I would imagine that especially among the, the younger generation, and, and this is uh, definitely uh, in Ricky's area as opposed to mine, but maybe you know we could we could hope that there's more definitely more more good than harm coming from it from a community point of view. But that's where I'd like to look, uh, and for that reason, sorry, just the, well, the last little thing just to clear it up is, as Crystal was saying, TikTok in a way has garnered more. Um, kudos from the community and it's very clear on what's going to fly and what's not or at least from a, from a Chinese perspective rather than from the Western perspective whether we personally I have a, a few misgivings about that um, and I'm remembering um, the young girl that put up the eyelash tutorial that turned into the you know the raising awareness of the Uyghur situation that was banned very quickly we might have a clearer conception they might give a clearer conception of what's excessive what's allowable and what's not but that should be, I believe, part of our public conversation is, do we share those values? Um, not so much, you know, well, it's nice that the lines are clear, so we'll stay within them. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Jazz, I might go to you at this stage just to see whether we've got any uh, questions that uh, people would like to throw in. They, they might have something a bit less uh, serious than some of the material we've been talking about, given TikTok, as Ricky can uh, testify f uh, firsthand, is uh, very much about, about fun and, and people enjoying life. But uh, do you have anything there, Chad? Yeah, so we had an interesting one which I think ties in um, with TikTok's value as a corporation into um, Ricky and Crystal's experience of it. Um, the question is, how do you see TikTok being used in a business sense currently and in the future? Um, and that ties into a question that we also got prior to the um, evening starting kind of geared towards Ricky, what's the best opportunity you've received from being on TikTok? Sure, sure. Um, so, look, I've been very fortunate to be uh, have done brand deals with um, some of the biggest companies, uh, Samsung, uh, Coca-Cola, Warner Music, um, to name a few. So TikTok is a great platform for you to get exposure. And, um, yeah, if you, if you really strategically build your brand to be, um, you know, like, conscious so you're not being too um crazy you're not being too controversial then um there are lots of commercial opportunities for you to um yeah work with companies like that excellent so 
Yeah, and um, yeah, other things like um, speaking, uh, consulting, this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, many opportunities can come from from the platform. I had one. If I oh, sorry, uh, any... Angus. No, not at all. Far um, away. Uh, it harks a little bit back to what Ricky was saying earlier about um, the, I guess, progressive nature of of the platform. Uh, interested a little bit in how. Uh, we, and we've talked a lot of bit, a, a lot about kind of big picture politics and national politics and stuff, but on an interpersonal level and a, on a cultural level, I know, Crystal, your experience, uh, your research focuses on different kind of social movements and how and how they play out in the platform. Be interested to get some insight into how um, how that aspect of it works. There are three things we need to first acknowledge and understand about the TikTok climate at the moment. The first one that Ricky has already pointed at is that we are now in the throes of cancel culture or call-out culture all throughout social media. Just about any other issue that has been lying in the dark for a long time is coming out, going viral via call-out cultures on TikTok, on Twitter, through Facebook and YouTube confession videos. In a space like TikTok specifically, there is this sense of a default antagonism between users whenever they see something that isn't right. It doesn't matter if you are a very, very big TikToker on this space or someone who's just starting out. The the sort of interactions and the features that are designed on TikTok allows you to reply or do it to someone's post. So as opposed to just only commenting on a post that someone finds problematic, you're able to have uh, the original post on one side, juxtapose your own post on the other side, and either do a compare and contrast, do um, reactions through your facial, your facial gestures, through commentary, through text on the screen overlay, in order to complement or criticize the original post. In that sense, the conversation keeps going. It is inviting network collabor- collaborations. It's inviting network um, conversations where people have the original and a derivative to draw on as they pile on, so to speak, whenever there is something to call out or something to cancel. Because a lot of these are not always organized by hashtags, if you are not in the know, if you're not a person who spends a lot of time on TikTok, often these sorts of call-outs may not be transparent to you unless you interact with that post and the algorithm feeds you more of that. So case in point, a couple of weeks ago, I took one day off TikTok, which is a very long time for an internet researcher, right? The next day, I found that a lot of TikTokers were calling out one specific creator who had recently gone super viral for a tattoo that she had revealed because for the first time in a long time, she had worn clothes that revealed her forearm or her thigh. And that tattoo turned out to be a symbol of Imperial Japan back in time. Well, she came out to say she wasn't aware of that history and has augmented that tattoo. Lots of people started duetting with this TikToker to say, with this size of audience that you have, with your virality, you need to be more sensitive about these things. There comes a responsibility and a legibility once you've got access to attention to so many people. And there was an ongoing back and forth conversation. Uh, The resolution was this person deciding to cover up that tattoo and even though we had thought that that issue was buried, the conversation continued until the duets died down and the next controversy took over. So this duet reply feature that allows the juxtaposition of posts on an equal level playing field that allows replies as well as controversial posts to go 
both go viral, allows more TikTokers to engage politically. I would say the second thing that we really must give the features of TikTok kudos for is the immense allowance for creativity. If you were to speak to young people on TikTok, the Australian young people who have rallied together to push for, say, the climate change march, to call out the Australian bushfires and pushing governments to change policies, um, to linked uh, to have linked Indigenous issues in Australia with the BLM movement that was taking place all around the world. This was uh, a place where young people could go in with lower barriers of entry. You didn't necessarily need it to be very sophisticated or even be very intellectual or veteran era or a very specific topic. Many young people just took to the creative methods of producing memes, going viral, spurring conversation to redirect attention flows and visibility to specific um, creators or specific posts. So in this way, there is a really big repertoire for what constitutes political activism in this space. It allows our very young ones, as well as those who are still learning, but who are very creative in this space to use their skills and to participate here. Finally, I would say the last thing, again, with the backdrop of TikTok being Chinese-owned and being so contentious, almost every injustice that you can think of that has involved China has been talked about on the app by TikTokers on that space. So as opposed to, say, abandoning the app, calling for people to reject it, TikTokers go there and start to educate each other and ask, is this the type of app you want to be on? Here is what's happening in the parent company. Are you sure you want to be in this space? So the conversations happen within that whole group among young people, as opposed to a very early fragmentation of people based on the values, those who want to stay on and those who want to abandon an app. So I would say there's a lot of space for negotiation. There's also a lot of space for people to just sit with unrest or sit with something that's not resolved. So conversations can continue in this space. That's really interesting. Is it subject, uh, can you tell me, pursuant to what you were just saying there, is it subject to uh, the kind of manipulation that uh, other platforms have been subject to via, uh, you know, via bots or deliberate uh, action that could skew a debate, uh, could skew a debate in a particular direction? For example, on that tattoo question that you raised, clearly... Uh, the, the view would be that Beijing would not be happy with uh, the Chinese Communist Party might not be happy with that tattoo and what it stands for. Is are all of the people who are criticising that TikTok creator for displaying that are all of those people legitimate? Are there concerns about legitimacy? From my interview snippets with influencer agencies, every type of inauthentic or sponsored action is a concern. On a space like TikTok, though, um, they believe, based on algorithmic folklore, that it's not as easy to control a bot army there. For starters, there are a lot of um, practices for one how one even is visible on the app. So it could be that you could produce a lot of content, hire a lot of bots, but the algorithm shadow bans you. So no one gets to see your content anyway, and it doesn't serve its purpose of being a bot planting and seeding information. You also see this from the subversive and circumvention um, practices that TikTokers employ. For instance, every time they want to mention the parent company ByteDance, they would selectively replace some letters with asterisks. Or if they want to talk about the algorithm, um, there is now this trend to talk about Aunt Algo or Uncle Rhythm, and young people just understand what you're talking about. So there are these shadow ban words or phrases 
actions and practices that young people perceive to trigger the algorithm to shadow ban you or to censor you. And therefore, if they do want to talk about contentious issues, more so than on any other platform, they're extremely creative. And if you leave the app for just a day, it might be very difficult to trace how a keyword or a, di a discourse has been manipulated to be embedded, hidden from plain sight, hidden from the censors, or hidden from people who are not the intended audiences. Uh, there's a really interesting question from Chloe. Uh, she's put this to all our panel. Uh, it's quite long, but one of the parts that really interests me is she asked, what is TikTok's business model and how do we see it evolving in the future? Can you uh, perhaps speak to that first, Crystal? The easy way out, the answer that would be the cheating answer, is that a lot of what has been introduced on TikTok thus far has been mirroring whatever is already established on Douyin, which is the original Chinese app, the domestic version that still runs as a separate app to TikTok. So I would say that a lot of companies, a lot of influencers and internet celebrity aspirants often behave on TikTok by anticipating its features or anticipating how it will work or operate based on already established features on Douyin. So case in point, live on TikTok was only very recently introduced, but up to a year before then, influencers and TikTokers were already preparing long-form interactions, preparing themselves to put out that content because live was the mainstay of Douyin interactions. And now that on Douyin, you can easily click through and purchase something um, on a website. You can do e-commerce in that space. You do see TikTok accounts belonging to small businesses also doing the same, trying to establish a sort of biography that leads people um, to purchase things easily or sort of organize a repository of posts that markets their wares, sort of like the good old days of Instagram before it was properly monetized. In addition to that, I would say another thing that is quite unique to TikTok is that very early on, the company has already introduced and formalized official brand partnerships. So to have a hashtag trend on TikTok, it is not as easy as having a business asking users to use its hashtag repeatedly. That does not surface in the feed. It gets shadow banned. Instead, in order to have someone or a group of people use your hashtag, you need to officially cooperate with TikTok, pay for this service as a brand partner so that this is one of the official ones that is used and is allowed to circulate in this space. But I reckon the experts like Ricky can probably talk us through some of the more creative ways to make money off the app in this way. Would you like to rise to that challenge, Ricky? Sure, sure. Look, I, th I think TikTok is a very clever company. It makes money in various different ways. The first one is um, what we just heard. So you can have a brand takeover. So this is where a company wants to take over everyone's apps. As soon as they open it, um, an ad will show up with your service or product. Um, it will hijack the app for about four or five seconds before you can skip it, um, driving traffic to your service or product. Um, you can also uh, engage TikTok to run a campaign uh, where you can get your own uh, hashtag. So it will show up on the featured kind of front page where people can interact and you know, users can create their own videos to your product to give you more exposure. Um, another way is they make money off live revenue. So imagine you have 100 million active users per month around the world. Each one is going live um, and broadcasting to their own fan base. Every single gift that they receive is uh, tokenized 
and people need to buy these tokens. And when they donate the tokens to their influencer of choice, TikTok takes a substantial cut of that. And that's how they make, um, that's the main source of revenue, I believe, thus far. Um, yeah, look, TikTok also works heavily in the music industry. So um, there are economies uh, within the music industry where people are paying money for aggregators to actually um, push your songs on TikTok. Um, so I believe TikTok is actively trying to establish partnerships with uh, record companies so they can get revenues from music also. Um, there's also an ad platform where it's a pay-to-play kind of thing, just like YouTube. You can um, put your campaign in and <clears throat> choose the demographic that you want to hit. And then um, depending on how much money you spend, it will be served to the demographic that you intend to see that content to drive traffic to your product. Um, there are so many other ways that TikTok are making money and in the future will look to make money. Um, as uh, as um, one of the panelists said before, uh, e-commerce is going to be a big thing where you will be able to, in the future, click on a piece of clothing that an influencer in the short video is wearing and it will take you to a, a store where you can buy that specific piece of clothing or a lipstick. Um, so, yeah. It's, there's, there's so many things happening on the commercial side of TikTok. One of the other interesting things I've noticed, uh, this is just uh, my own observation, and I may even be wrong on this, but I'll be interested in, in your thoughts, Ricky. It mm. seems to me even some of the mainstream television advertising has started to respond to a sort of a tic-tac form. I think there's a, a finder.com ad, for example, that has everyone deliver a message and then break into a particular dance, which has a... Um, a TikTok feel about it. I'm wondering whether we're getting sort of cultural backwash in the other direction. It definitely. I mean, with the rise, of, like the meteoric rise of TikTok, it has shifted culture. Um, people are, you know, their attention spans are getting less and less. Um, and yeah, like things like that really attract attention. And I think we've been conditioned using these apps for hours and hours per day to respond to that kind of movement. So obviously a brand being smart would want to leverage that kind of uh, content. Did you have any uh, other questions you wanted to raise, Jazz or, or Angus, that might have come through? I'd love to ask, Ricky, how do you navigate people interacting with your content, you interacting with other people's content, as Crystal was describing before? Um, with so much fame, have you yourself had any backlash for the content you've posted? Um, how have you navigated that and how have you navigated that cancel culture um, after developing such a following? Yeah, yeah. There are, there are a few videos that we posted that were, um, look, unbeknownst to me, it, um, it offended a lot of people. Um, and it, the intention wasn't to offend, but people tend to nitpick things. So if they see something in the background that they don't agree with and you weren't even intending to show it, they could use that as ammo to kind of come at you. So um, for me, my way to mitigate that is just to be very careful about what I upload. So um, you have to be conscious of these things because the backlash can be really, really tough. Um, and cancel culture, it's not meritocratic. Yeah, it's just, it's just people trying to 
immerse themselves in your life and um, try to get get a rise from you, I guess, um, and feel a part of your downfall or whatever it is that they want to do. But yeah, for me, it happens in the editing process. So I edit offline and in the editing process, I make sure that I mitigate all possible ways to get cancelled. <laughs> That's the easy answer, I guess. And how, how much time do you spend on it, have you estimated, per week? I don't mean necessarily watching other people's stuff but creating yourself. Sure. Look, um, I've slowed down a lot on TikTok, but in, in my first year and a half, which that was when our rise uh, was the strongest, I would spend about eight hours a day on the app thinking up ideas on what to do, editing and, um, and filming. So eight, nine hours um, on the app, looking at other people's uh, content, probably about three, four hours a day, and then coming up with my own content, maybe about four hours a day. Any, any sort of, if you had to give someone three tips on how to uh, make an impact on TikTok, what would that be? Simple, to upload three times a day forever. <laughs> That's the simplest way. Um, make sure that what you're making is true to you. Um, upload consistently um, three videos per day until you're famous enough that you want to stop um, and also uh, interact with the culture of the app because um, if you disrespect the people on the app, um, then they will cancel you. Well, Ricky, thanks for being with us on this uh, very special podcast, this Zoom podcast. It's been terrific hearing your firsthand expertise about all this. Thanks also to Dr. James Mortensen from the ANU and Dr. Crystal Aberdon. It's been from Curtin University. It's been terrific uh, getting your input. Thanks to Angus and Jazz also and to those people who who put questions in. I'm sorry if we haven't got to all of those. I hope uh, everyone who's listening is um, more au fait with with TikTok and also, I I guess, um, some of the debates that are surrounding this, um, you know, increasingly controversial platform and, and, and as Ricky says, increasingly influential as well. Um, thanks all of you for joining us tonight. Uh, we want to hear what you thought of tonight's discussion. If you are with us live, we'd love you to fill out the post-event survey, which will appear in your browser at the conclusion of this event. If you are listening on Policy Forum, you can reach us via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or shoot us a good old-fashioned email at podcast at policyforum.net. And please also join our pod squad on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and hit join. We're looking forward to welcoming you on board. If you've enjoyed this discussion, we'd love you to subscribe to us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite series from. And whilst you're there, you might even want to leave us a review. Your support is always appreciated. Uh, Until next time, bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 